the true story of mary pickford's beginning from photoplay magazine july nineteen twenty three by terry ramsey this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the true story of mary pickford's beginning a little miss in a gray jacket with curls down her back and an earnest wistful face stepped off a street car at fifth avenue and went walking slowly along fourteenth street looking up at the house numbers this was in early may of nineteen o nine only fourteen years ago by the calendars but a century ago in the affairs of the motion picture the little girl was on her way to see if by chance there might be a place for her in biograph pictures she jingled a couple of stray pennies in her pocket to remind her that her last nickel had gone for car fare and if she did not get the job that she hoped for there would be a long walk back to the boarding-house way uptown in thirty-seventh street no one gave special notice to this rather unimportant little person of sixteen except perhaps the passing glance of approval that youth and a pretty face always get in new york she was just one of the crowd that is always passing in the busy forenoon in fourteenth street but if it were announced to-day that this same little girl would walk along that same path in that same street the police reserves would have to be called to keep back the crowds and business would stop as proprietors clerks and customers rushed to the doorways the girl was mary pickford the cinderella queen-to-be of the motion picture in just six years more the amazing day was to come when the little girl with the curl could smile into the face of an anxious motion picture magnate and say in all seriousness no i really cannot afford to work for only ten thousand a week that last five-cent piece invested in a car ride to fourteenth street was the beginning of a remarkable journey but back of that day in 1909, Mary Pickford had a life experience on the other side of the picture, worthy of recording here by way of contrast, and for those who mayhap see her successes of today through the eyes of envy. At sixteen, Mary had been at work for eleven hard years. She was already old with experience of the stern realities of this workaday world she was born into the most humble circumstances of life and lived close to the shadow of want miss pickford was gladys smith an infant of four when her father died in toronto leaving his widow nothing except a family of three with gladys the oldest that morning when one of the neighbors came and took gladys away for the day the little girl knew that in the darkened best room her father lay dead with candles burning about the crucifix that stood at his head she knew too that things were going to be harder now for her mother in a vague childish way she wanted to help there were many other tragedies after that the slender capital of the family was invested in a little candy shop that shared half of a fish store the candy counter did a small business selling gumdrops at a penny each to the passing school children but it sufficed for the time then came the ill-fated day when baby jack was left alone in the store with the family's pet dog jack found that the dog liked candy and fed him the entire stock of the establishment the dog died jack was spanked and 
the candy store was bankrupt. Gladys's mother went out to look for work. The little girl was old enough to go along with her mother when she went to interview the manager of the Valentine Stock Company of Toronto, and it was ambitious little Gladys herself who suggested that she might have the baby part in the production under rehearsal. The amused director tried her, found that Gladys could act, and promptly engaged her for the part. From that day on, Gladys Smith was on the stage. The next season she played in The Little Red Schoolhouse, and not long thereafter appeared in the cast of that sterling melodrama entitled The Fatal Wedding. Many other melodramas followed. Then came an engagement for the whole Smith family, Mother, Lottie, and Jack, with Chauncey Alcott in Edmund Burke. Jack, by the way, was cast as a little girl in a frilly dress, to the extreme unhappiness of the young man. In the course of this engagement, the mother decided to put away the popular but unromantic name of Smith for the purposes of the stage, and took for the family name Pickford, the name of her paternal grandmother. Gladys Pickford did not ring right to her ears, and so Gladys was changed to Mary, the most glorious name in all Ireland. Mary shared with her mother the burdens and responsibilities of the family as best she could, and developed an initiative of her own. She strived mightily in her way, trooping with the road shows and living the often precarious life of the wandering player. She was of those itinerant folk of the roadshow melodramas, who call Broadway home, but seldom see it except in those unhappy idle days when they are resting while at liberty. Mary was on her way up in the world if she could find that way. She learned to read and write on the road and between scenes backstage, under the tutorship of the female heavy of a melodrama company. Meanwhile, Mary listened and learned of the world about her. She heard a very great deal of the chesty gossip of mellow actors discussing, when I was with Belasco, and came to learn that on this wonderful Broadway, Belasco was master. This established, she made her decision. She would play with Belasco. One day when the company was called for rehearsal for a change of bill over in a little New Jersey opera house, Miss Mary Pickford was missing. Over in New York, Mary was storming the stage door of Belasco's theater, demanding audience with him. But he won't see nobody at all. He's rehearsing the company right now. The guardian of the stage door thought that ought to be enough and final. I don't care if he is. I cut a rehearsal over in Jersey to come, and he's going to see me. Mary Pickford charged past the astonished doorman in a gust of mingled rage and determination. He followed, on tiptoe, prayerfully hoping that this slip would not bring down on him the wrath of Belasco and the loss of his job. The doorman was just in time to see Mary dash into the center of the stage where a company was rehearsing the Warrens of Virginia. Belasco was in a bad humor over the play. It was going all awry, mostly because of an unsatisfactory child part. The abrupt appearance of little Mary, projecting herself into the middle of his troubles, struck Belasco with the full force of its drama. He stopped, waved the company to silence, and smiled down on his collar. She was breathless and awed, but she had yet the courage of her sensational entrance. Ten minutes later, Miss Mary Pickford was rehearsing in The Warrens of Virginia under the eyes of the great Belasco. 
she had come to Broadway and won. For three seasons, until she had outgrown her part, Mary played in this production. With the courage of this conquest behind her, it is easy to see how it came that Mary was willing to toss her last nickel for car fare on a long chance that she might get into the pictures with Biograph. That was her way. She decided what to do, and forthwith did it. When Mary came that June morning to number 11 East 14th Street and turned up the steps to the Biograph studio, she was faced with even less promise than the day she applied at Belasco's stage door. The reception room at Biograph was presided over by a secretary whose disposition had been written off as a total loss years before. Her slender patience had been worn away by the abundant annoyances of the motion picture business. Her words were sharp and few. Mary tiptoed up. I want to see Mr. Griffith. Mr. Griffith is busy. He will not see anybody. Then the secretary looked up and into the wistful smile of Mary. Griffith, with his mind bent on his work in the studio above, was passing at the moment. He stopped abruptly when he heard an amazing change of tone come into the voice of the woman behind the desk, still addressing the caller. "'But he might take time to see you, my dear.' Griffith wheeled about. Who in thunder could this be that the reception room clerk would address so tenderly? What miracle had been wrought?' Then Griffith saw Mary. Together they went up the big staircase to the studio, the same romantic stairway that had felt the tread of many a grand dame and many a figure in the making of the nation's history back in the days when the room, where the Cooper Hewitts cast their eerie green glow, had been the grand ballroom of the Martin Van Buren mansion. The lonely villa was in the making. It was a typical Griffith drama of the day a biograph feature to be one whole reel in length twice as long as the skits and comedies that made up the staple film output of the trade marian leonard was the leading woman in the lonely villa robbers were trying to break into the villa while the wife with her children clutching at her skirts in terror frantically tried to telephone for help her message of dire distress was but half told to her husband miles away mary pickford was put into play the part of one of the children imperiled while the robbers battered at the door that afternoon at quitting time mary got a handsome blue ticket which enabled her to draw five dollars at the cashier's window in payment for her first day's work in motion pictures her last nickel had been returned to her a hundredfold and although she did not suspect it she had entered upon a career that was in time to make her the most famous woman in the world and endow her with a wealth beyond her most ambitious fancy griffith had a bit of difficulty with this complicated drama of the lonely villa the robbers were expected to batter away at the door of the villa while the rescuing husband with reinforcements was on the way arriving at last in the well-known nick of time winning against all obstacles including motor trouble in a horseless carriage the work of the robbers at the door was just a shade unconvincing griffith was not satisfied and decided on a retake which was considered rather a wasteful procedure in the motion picture practice of the day while the remaking of these scenes was in progress a stranger found his way as far as the studio door 
it was james kirkwood just off the road from playing in the great divide with henry miller and by the by with henry walthall a fellow member of the company kirkwood had wandered into biograph looking for his friend harry salter an actor who had become an assistant to griffith salter introduced kirkwood to griffith griffith sized up kirkwood at a glance here put on a beard and get into the scene as one of the robbers kirkwood had heard of these motion picture things but he had the standard and orthodox actor's suspicious contempt for them no no i can't do that yes you can and you'll fit the part fine griffith and salter would have their way if i wear a beard nobody will know me anyway here goes kirkwood decided he went on kirkwood joined the mob of robbers smashing in the villa door he remained with biograph the rest of the year and presently henry walthall who had been with him in the great divide came down to join the company the lonely villa aside from its historic service as the vehicle of the introduction to the screen of mary pickford and james kirkwood is worthy of remembrance because of the durability of the plot it has lived in griffith's memory ever since and in nineteen twenty two it came to flower again as a pretentious feature drama somewhat modernized and revamped under the title of one exciting night the basic elements of the two stories are well near identical mary's appearance in that small part in the lonely villa was enough to show griffith something of the screen value of her winsome face she was cast for the part of giannina in the violin maker of cremona the hero role was played by david miles an actor from the stage who had been added to the biograph stock by griffith the violin maker of cremona was released by biograph june seventh nineteen o nine in nine hundred thirty six feet subject number thirty five seventy five as may be seen in the old catalogues of the period there was joy in the pickford family at mary's success and the prospect of steady employment through the summer even in nineteen o nine the peep-show machines which readers of earlier chapters will recall as the foundation of biograph's beginnings were still widely in service in penny arcades and at odd moments between more pretentious subjects the biograph studio turned out the little one-minute dramas and farces for the mutoscopes lottie and jack pickford made their first appearances before the motion picture camera for these mutoscope subjects through arrangements made by mary who let no opportunity for the family pass untried griffith delegated the direction of these mutoscope pictures as much as possible to budding directorial material in his company many of these reels were directed by eddie dillon and harry salter and the little card-wheel pictures of the peep-shows contain casts with now famous names that no feature drama of the screen has ever brought together mary pickford played bits too in those days one reel dramas split reel comedies and peep-show pictures all the grist of the biograph mill mary was soon an established member of the biograph family they gathered at lunch about a rough table in the basement of the old mansion at eleven east fourteenth street to eat sandwiches rustled from an adjacent saloon lunch counter by bobby heron custodian of properties general utility person and errand boy at large 
a considerable part of the art of the motion picture was evolved in the lunch-table discussion between the actors cameraman and griffith the experimenting director the talk was pictures pictures everlastingly pictures everything was new then and many many things had yet to be tried there were debates about close-ups and cutbacks and all of those bits of camera technique that had been evolved by the pioneers and that griffith was now making a part of the art of telling a dramatic story on the screen griffith's pictures were conspicuous for the way in which he brought the action up close to the camera frequently cutting off the actor's feet at the bottom of the pictures this was considered by many of his critics as a terrible piece of barbarity no doubt some of the more conservative producers felt that it was waste of good money to hire an actor and then not photograph all of him in the picture the very simplest elements of motion picture storytelling and the evolution of the use of the camera as an instrument of expression rather than of mere record all had to be tediously established and some of the old fetishes of early-day motion picture superstition still survive as late as nineteen twenty two one of the leading english producers informed the writer that he held it a serious mistake to have any character appear on the screen without entering the scene full length feet and all in these early experimental days max sennett was an untiring student of picture technique following every step that griffith took when no better provocation offered he carried the camera to be among those present when the supply of scenarios to his liking failed griffith often called for suggestions from the company fifteen dollars for the best split-reel comedy idea was a welcome announcement with pencils and paper twisting their tongues and scratching their heads like schoolboys laboring over a slate the biograph actors could be found in all corners of the studio trying to erupt with screen ideas just one thing was inevitable in these sessions max sennett would come forward with a policeman scenario it is not on record that sennett ever sold one to griffith but he persisted with a patience that made sennett's policeman comedy scenario the best standing joke of the studio laugh at my comedy if you want to but i'm going to make the policeman famous sennett insisted and all who remember the keystone cops that eventually came forth under sennett's direction some years later will admit that mac made good on his threat it would seem probable that the extreme violence of sennett's keystone cop comedy resulted from his early repressions and discouragements at biograph but mary pickford was a rather more successful contributor of scenarios she was the author of a surprising number of the early griffith biograph pictures among mary's scenarios were several which will perhaps linger in the memory of some of the old followers of the screen including the awakening featuring arthur johnson getting even with james kirkwood caught in the act lena and the geese the alien granny in which lottie pickford played fate's decree and the girl of yesterday doubtless the rich eventfulness of mary pickford's experience in roadshow melodrama gave her a fund of that special sort of material which griffith desired in this wonderful school of the motion picture mary grew up with the art of picture-making itself learning it as fast as it evolved and herself contributing to its evolution 
the world prefers to think of miss pickford as the pretty little girl with the curl pursuing a dramatic pictorial destiny through a pollyanna world of just so arrangements but in point of truth she is as diligent a student of her business as any office prisoned executive dour with the weight of his responsibilities no doubt the world prefers to believe that mary pickford's success has been a resultant of luck curls and cunning sweet girl ways but half a hundred girls with more beauty just as much luck and equally cunning ways have striven in vain for a share in mary's niche of fame there must be something to credit to that famous old formula of some brains and a lot of hard work end of the true story of mary pickford's beginning from photoplay magazine july nineteen twenty three by terry ramsey read by andrea kotzer